The Mediterranean Sea is a beautiful sea. Great deal of importance attached to the Mediterranean Sea and the control of it, and great deal of commerce there, and that's been the case for a long time. Over the years, debris was scattered over the Mediterranean Sea by ships and on the Isle of Sicily, there were those who would gather the water-soaked driftwood and make beautiful furniture from that driftwood. You know, driftwood is not very attractive as you uh, see it and um, see it in the water, soaked. But there is some benefit to driftwood. Well, one might immediately say, well... Uh, benefit to driftwood. Well, beautiful furniture has been made from it. Go to the web and just uh, do a Google for driftwood and see what some have taken something that looks like this and, uh, and made. I found pictures of full-size, looked like full-size horses, statues of horses, uh, sculptures, of, uh, sculpture of horses made from driftwood. Tables. I saw a cocktail table, coffee table that was selling for $701. Its base was completely driftwood. You know, you can't burn driftwood or you shouldn't burn driftwood in your stove or if you've gotten a bad tight and you needed some emergency fuel for heating, don't put it in a wood stove because uh, if it came from the salt water especially, it has so much salt in it and when the heat hits it, uh, these dioxins are formed and what you get is a very toxic mix and toxic fumes that can do great harm to your health. So you can't even gather it and burn it and even freshwater driftwood I'm told has, uh, has gravel and silt in it that you don't want to put in your stove or burn. So what good uh, is it? Can it be transformed? You know, according to the Bible, life is a sea. The passage on the screen reminds us of that in Matthew 13, 47 and 48. There Jesus in those beautiful parables describing the kingdom of heaven, seven beautiful parables in that 13th chapter of Matthew, descriptive of the kingdom of heaven. In one of those, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full... They drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. Matthew 13, 47 and 48. And so there, in that parable, the Lord depicts the world as the sea. As the sea from which is gathered through this dragnet, the dragnet being representative of the gospel of Christ, gathered of every kind that come into the kingdom of heaven. There are many human wrecks, human wrecks that are drifting aimlessly upon the sea, which is this world. And yet they are, even though they are drifting, and though they would seem to be nothing but a nuisance, and driftwood itself sometimes can be a nuisance to those who are trying to navigate waters because it simply gets in their way. Those who are still drifting upon the sea which is the world out there and have not come to know Christ are 
certainly not doing anything that is contributing to the spiritual welfare of anyone else, let alone to their own spiritual welfare. But that can all change. That can all be changed. Because the master, the master who gave this parable about the kingdom of heaven has the capability to transform into the finest and most beautiful things in the world those who are drifting aimlessly upon the sea of life out here in the world. Just as those Sicilian uh, craftsmen could take driftwood out of the sea and craft it into beautiful furniture, the Lord can do much more than that with the spiritual driftwood, if you will, that's still drifting upon the sea, which is the world. We know he has that capability. We know that he can completely transform a drifting, seemingly useless existence into something beautiful. We know he can do it because he has demonstrated his ability to do that in the past. And his ability to transform is aided by his knowledge of what is in man. Because he knows that in man there is that potential for that complete transformation. Because man is created in the image of God. Man is created with that precious immortal spirit that will live for all eternity. Let's look at some examples this morning of that ability that the Lord has to change lives. Think with me for a moment about Simon Peter. What about Simon Peter? When he was called, he was Simon the son of Jonah. But later the Lord said he would be called Peter, which is a stone, a rock. You know, had we been there and having some knowledge of Peter, we might have said, Lord, it will never work. It'll never work. You will not be successful with this man because he's changeable, he's unstable. And you know, there are some events that we read about in Scripture that followed, which would seem to bolster that kind of thinking. Look for a moment at Matthew 14. Remember that occasion when Jesus came to the disciples walking on the water? Remember the forward nature of Peter and the confidence that he uh, expressed initially how forward he was. Peter answered him after the Lord had said, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Peter struck out on the water. That was his forward nature. We might say that on one occasion he was somewhat boastful because in Matthew chapter 26, just prior to the Lord's betrayal and his prediction that the disciples themselves would deny him. What did Peter say? In verse 33 of Matthew 26, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Not me, Lord. And then the Lord said, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What did Peter say then? Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all of the disciples on that occasion. Well, what happened? He denied the Lord, didn't he? Three times he denied the Lord. But the Lord had said to him, When you are converted, not if you are converted, but the Lord expressed confidence in him, When you are converted, then you're going to do the work that I want you to do. And in fact, in John chapter 21, 
at verse 19, after the resurrection of Christ, prior to his ascension to the Father, as he met with the disciples on that occasion, he spoke, he spoke of a death, he spoke of a death that Peter would die by which he would glorify God. Listen to what he said to him in John chapter 21, verse 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then verse 19 comments, this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. The Lord has just told Peter, you are going to die for me. And then when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And to Peter's credit, even after hearing those words, he was not deterred, but he did follow. And he was given, along with the other disciples, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, privileged to preach as with the others on Pentecost and to have a portion of his sermon recorded for us, until the Lord comes again in Acts chapter 2. After making that great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter and the others use the keys to the kingdom to open the doors of the kingdom, the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to those on Pentecost and to many precious souls thereafter. Peter glorified God in his life and in his death by dying for his faith in Christ. Tradition says that Peter was crucified, but that he requested specifically that he was not worthy to die as the Lord did and requested to be crucified head downward because he was not worthy to die in the same fashion as his Lord. That's a transformation, isn't it? That's a transformation from what some might have characterized as spiritual driftwood, aimless, boastful, forward, changeable to one who was as solid as the rock which his name indicated, Peter. What about John? Another of the Lord's disciples. John was not always known as the disciple of love. We know him now as the disciple of love, but you remember that earlier he was called one of the sons of thunder, James and his brother John. John, one of those two brothers called the sons of thunder. And you remember on one occasion that he had such a temper that he wanted to have fire, you remember it? Sent down from heaven to destroy the Samaritan villages which had rejected the Lord. Luke 9, verse 54. When the disciples, his disciples James and John saw this, that is, saw that these Samaritans wouldn't receive the Lord because they knew that he was determined to go to Jerusalem and there was such animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews they didn't even want to receive him. How did James and John react? They said, Lord, do you want us to command, command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. So that spirit was not commendable at that time. And yet John writes more of love than any other inspired writer. Yes, he became known as not a son of thunder, but 
as a disciple, the disciple of love. And how could we leave out Saul of Tarsus when it comes to the transformation from a drifting, aimless life, though Saul was determined and believed with all of his heart that his life was anything but aimless and drifting upon the sea of the world out there. No, he believed he was doing God's will. He was a violent enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He called himself the chief of sinners, yet later he would be the chief of saints, the prince of preachers. A great apostle who labored more abundantly than they all, and he said, yet it was the grace of God that made possible my labors. In Bible class this morning, we're in the section of Acts where he has just come to Corinth now as Paul the apostle, after he was converted to Christ. He's now coming into Corinth, a city that was a synonym for vice, as we mentioned this morning in Bible class, to Corinthianize, to Corinthianize meant to commit fornication. That's how, that's how degraded the city of Corinth was. With the Acro-Corinth, the high place flat on top where the temple of Aphrodite was located. And I think a thousand prostitutes regularly practiced their trade as a part of the worship to this goddess, false goddess Aphrodite. This was a city that was synonymous with immorality. And floating on that sea in Corinth were thieves and idolaters and fornicators and covetous and, and drunkards. And yet we read about, we read about change, don't we? But let's ask this. How does the Lord work this change? The change in the life of Peter, the change in the life of John, the change in the life of Saul of Tarsus, and the change in the lives of people who are surrounded by moral filth and degradation like those in the city of Corinth. How does he work that change? I can tell you he doesn't do it by, by entertaining them into obedience to the gospel. No, he does it by the gospel itself, doesn't he? He doesn't do it by deception. He does it by the pure, unadulterated preaching of the gospel of Christ because in that gospel inherently is found the power of God. The gospel is the power of God to bring about that transformation, Romans 1.16. Paul there wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That includes everyone. The gospel is for all, and the gospel has that power, and in the gospel there is saving power. In the gospel there is enlightening power. In the gospel there is instructive power. In the gospel there is cleansing power. But how is that power applied? We can hear it all day long, but we'll never apply the power until we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter reminds those in his first epistle who had done just that of what they had done as he writes in verse 22 of chapter 1 beginning, Since you have purified, you've cleansed your souls, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the what? Through the Spirit, the Spirit that reveals that word, that gospel. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. How, Peter, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through what? Through the Word of God. That's the power, the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. 
Because he goes on, all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now notice how he concludes that section. Now this is the word which by the what? Gospel was preached to you. How did those to whom Peter wrote who were Christians apply the power of the gospel? By obeying the truth. By obeying the truth, they purified their souls through obedience to the teaching of the Spirit. That hasn't changed since before Peter wrote those words, when he wrote those words, and to this very moment in time. That has never changed, nor will it change until the Lord comes again, because the Lord himself said heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. That word is that power. That power to cleanse. That power to take that that ugly looking shapeless drifting driftwood and to get it out of that sea which is the sea of sin and sinfulness and to clean it. Just as the driftwood before it can be used for anything has to be cleaned has to be cleaned. This one has been sandblasted. It's been cleaned. Now it's not at its final point as we shall see, but it has been cleaned. And just as the driftwood must be cleaned, so must our lives be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And that can only be accomplished through obedience to the gospel of Christ. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians where we were a few moments ago. And what did What did Paul write? This is verse 11 that you see here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But if we go back to uh, verse 9 to gain the context here a little more fully. Do you not know, Paul writes here, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But what? Like the driftwood, you were washed, but you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That piece of wood looks a lot better than the wood in its original state. It's been cleaned. It's been cleaned. But what will happen to it if you throw it back into the sea? Well, it won't be very long until it'll look like the dirty piece all over again. And there's an application for us to appreciate in that respect as well, spiritually. And that is individuals who have been cleansed by initial obedience to the gospel can go back into the sea, as it were. They can go back into that world from which they were drawn by the dragnet, which is the gospel. They can go back into that world and be lost. They can become spoiled. Oh, and I know, and we've talked about it often, there are... Myriads of people today in the religious world who say, no, that's not a possibility. Once cleaned, always cleaned. You can't go back into the world. But hundreds of passages from Scripture prove otherwise. 
One that's most familiar, of course, is 2 Peter 2, verse 20, beginning, where Peter writes, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, after they've come out of that sea of sin, in other words, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, how? Again, through the what? Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How does that knowledge come? Through the gospel. There's the power of the gospel again. If they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are what? They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then he illustrates it very graphically when he says, But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire, having been washed to go back into that mire. That's a distinct possibility. And tragically, it has been a distinct reality in the lives of many whom many of us know personally, who having escaped the pollutions of the world, have so conducted themselves as to go back into that sea, back into the world, and ultimately to lose their soul. Better to have never left the sea, better to have been that aimlessly drifting driftwood than to have come out and then go back. That's what Peter says. He's not saying that remaining in the, in the sea, as it were, uh, that remaining in the world is going to excuse you and save you as a result of your never coming out. No, you've got to come out. But when you've been blessed to hear and obey the gospel and then to turn your back on it, far greater punishment awaits those who have known and then have turned away. Therefore, the Christian must continue to obey the gospel. You know, there's some who may have the mistaken idea that you obey the gospel once. We talked about that in class, and Joe mentioned about baptism, that sometimes there may be such an emphasis on baptism that people think, well, that's all I have to do. If I'm baptized, that's it. No. Obviously, baptism has to be preceded by a faith that will lead you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus to be the Christ, and then be buried in baptism. But once you rise from that watery grave, you are to continue to obey the gospel. That is to obey the teaching of Jesus Christ. We're to stand in that gospel continually. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 15, 1, beginning, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, by the gospel, we're still talking about the gospel, if you hold fast that word which was preached to you, which I preached to you. What was that word, the gospel? Unless you believed in vain. And then he goes on, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Yes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ must be, must be understood, must be contemplated, must be that which motivates us 
as we think of his horrific death upon Calvary and the love that prompted him to go there, that should motivate us to die with him in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. But a belief must precede that full repentance of our sins as we turn from our sin, sweet confession of his name, and living that confession every day of our lives after we arise from that watery grave, continuing to obey the gospel. The gospel is something Christians continue to obey. Peter reminds us of that, doesn't he? In 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 and 2. Therefore laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, just obeyed the gospel, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may what? Grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, verse 3. Oh yes, the gospel must be continually obeyed. We must remain clean. And the only way to remain clean is by continual obedience and moving on to spiritual maturity. So after the cleansing takes place, the changes continue. Cleansing and then continual change, growth. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way or seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And as he does, he's like that tree, isn't he? He flourishes, he grows. He's no longer that piece of aimlessly drifting driftwood. He has been cleansed and he is moving toward a beautiful spiritual maturity. The Lord, the Lord makes that change through the Word. The Apostle Paul describes the change we're talking about very beautifully in his second Corinthian epistle at chapter 3 and verse 18. There he writes, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What a wonderful thought that is. We're all being, in the process of being, transformed into His image. And where is it that we get the perfect picture of His image? In His Word. And as we look into that mirror of His Word and as we feed upon that Word, we become more like Him every day. And that is a transformation from aimlessly drifting upon the sea of sin to becoming a beautiful and mature child of God. You know, those changes keep on taking place if we keep applying ourselves. They're not necessarily overnight dramatic changes that we see. It's like learning. You know, we can, often cannot see that learning day by day. The child in the home grows. The child in the home grows, and we may not perceive that growth uh, uh, every day so much as, as we do as when we uh, put last year's clothes on the child from a year earlier, and then we say, whoa, you've grown. But we've got to apply ourselves to that growth spiritually and feed upon those things that will produce that growth. That child's not going to be 
he's not going to be changed to the point that you see such a difference from one year to the next unless that child has been nurtured physically. What about the spiritual child? Are you going to see a change from year to year unless you are being nurtured spiritually, unless you're applying yourselves to that which will bring about that transformation from that aimless, drifting life to one of beauty and maturity in Christ? No. Just as the driftwood can be made into something beautiful and desirable and decorative, Christ can change our aimless lives into lives of usefulness and lives of beauty. Look at the great transformation that has taken place here. That's quite lovely, isn't it? Quite lovely. And so is the Christian life. The life that has been transformed by being in Christ and by growing in Christ. But any life that is out of Christ is driftwood. Useless, still drifting on the sea, and many times a threat to small vessels on the sea of life. You know, one of those vessels might be a son or a daughter. One of those vessels might be a close relative of another type other than immediate family. Might be a co-worker. Might be a longtime friend. Those vessels with whom we come into contact need to see us not as an aimless, drifting life, because that's a dangerous life indeed, but to see the beautiful life. The beautiful life that has been transformed by the Christ. The Lord knows what's in you, and the Lord knows what you can become. But you're going to have to make the effort. You're going to have to show your faith in Him by obeying the gospel of Christ, the power of God for salvation, and by continuing to obey it after that initial obedience. We've already outlined the simple plan by which man is initially saved. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And then begin that life of transformation as you continue to grow into a beautiful, beautiful example of what Christ can do with an aimless, drifting life. If your life has once been beautiful, as one who obeyed the gospel and grew, but now you can no longer say that you look like this picture, but that, in fact, you have thrown yourself, as it were, back into that sea of sin from which you once were privileged and blessed to come. You need to come home through repentance, confession of sin as publicly as it's been committed, and with a commitment to turn back to God. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, but that blood is only contacted as you submit yourself to a burial in water where the blood is applied. Will you come now as we stand to sing?